This message was given at Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. At the end, we will give information about how to contact us to receive a copy of this or other messages. Go ahead and turn to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. I was reading some, uh, some quotes today from Justice Antonin Scalia. And as I read this one, I had to put it in your notes because this is, this is 1 Corinthians. Justice Scalia wrote, God assumed from the beginning that the wise of the world would view Christians as fools. And he has not been disappointed. Devout Christians are destined to be regarded as fools in modern society. We are fools for Christ's sake. We must pray for courage to endure the scorn of the sophisticated world. If I have brought any message today, it is this. Have the courage to have your wisdom regarded as stupidity. Be fools for Christ and have the courage to suffer the contempt of the sophisticated world. <laughs> that comes right from 1 Corinthians 1 and 2. And so, well, we're in 1 Corinthians 3, so go ahead and turn there. And we're going to read the first four verses. The apostle says, And I, brethren, could not speak to you as spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, as to infants in Christ, I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not yet able to receive it. Indeed, even now you are not yet able, for you are still fleshly. For since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly and are you not walking like mere men? For when one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not mere men? Well, this passage, which goes from chapter 3, 1 through verse 17, uh, has been the basis of some of the most pernicious and dangerous teaching uh, in the church in the last 150 years. This passage has been the basis for the um, carnal Christian doctrine, and although we're not going to do anything regarding that particular doctrine tonight, uh, we will deal with that in, in probably a few weeks and uh, refute the idea that what Paul is doing is establishing three categories of people and two different categories of Christians. That is not only a profoundly wrong way to read the text, it is also a profoundly dangerous doctrine. I have no doubt that even Right now, there are multitudes that are in hell that thought they were going to heaven because they were carnal Christians. And so I cannot wait to um, demolish that because I hate that teaching um, with my whole guts, all right? So be that as it may, we're going to press on and follow Paul's argument for the time being. And... Remember that back in chapter 1, Paul starts with the issue of division. In fact, if you look back at chapter 1, you'll see in uh, 1.10, I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. For I've been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels. Now, quarrels is not strong enough. Contentions, conflicts, battles among you. Now, I mean this, that each of you is saying, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, and I of Cephas, and I of Christ. And that's, that's how Paul starts out, dealing with these divisions. And then he seems to switch gears, seems to apparently stop dealing with divisions, but I think that would actually be a wrong reading of the text. I think that what Paul's doing is the divisions are a symptom, and what Paul's doing is Paul's digging down a little beneath the surface to the root issues, to the real issues, and of course the real issues has to do with 
not ultimately division, but a pride and an arrogance that not only diminishes the gospel, but also destroys the unity of the people of God. And so Paul is dealing with a group of people who, because of their division, because of their divisiveness, because of their contentious spirit, because of their their arrogance and their impudence, Paul identifies the fact that not only are they undermining the gospel, they're destroying the church. I've often thought that, and I say this in, in, uh, in our membership class, I'll typically say something like this, um, adultery has slain its thousands, but gossip has slain its tens of thousands. Well, I think in a real sense, uh, we could say that uh, although adultery has slain its thousands, division, divisiveness, contention among God's people has slain its tens of thousands. And so Paul is going to deal with these people. Uh, Now, of course, do the Corinthians think they have the Spirit? (laughs) Now, Paul thinks they have the Spirit, but the Corinthians don't have the Spirit in the way the Corinthians think they have the Spirit. All right? The Corinthians look at themselves as incredibly mature, incredibly wise, incredibly spiritual. They think they have the spirit, but what they have is a divided church, driven by pride. And so Paul is, um, this is probably the best way for me to put it in, in 3, 1 to 4. Paul's going to give them a spanking, okay? Paul is going to give them a, 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 a whipping uh, in 3, 1 to 4. He is actually going to um, move on from there and then start talking about how they should regard God's servants, right? They have attached themselves. I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos. He's going to talk about how they should regard God's servants, what God's servants actually do, and then he's going to give them one of the sternest warnings about destroying the church. And so there really is a sort of a unique... Um, parallel between chapter 2, 1 to 5, where Paul talks about his own preaching and ministry among the Corinthians, and then the way that he actually talks about how he couldn't talk to them exactly the way that he wanted to in 3, 1 to 4. And so those passages uh, parallel each other, and if you uh, sort of follow Paul's argument, um, you know, he has said that we don't preach the cleverness of the wisdom of men so that your faith wouldn't rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. But we really do preach the wisdom of God among the mature. And of course, he does not mean actually the Corinthians at that point. Uh, he is going to then talk about the source of that wisdom that comes from God. And then he's going to make the point that the natural man, that's the man without the spirit, doesn't receive the things of the spirit of God. And then he closes that whole section, but, but we have the mind of Christ. And right on the heels of that, right on the heels of that, notice the way this, this, this flows in a sense. Verse 16, last sentence, but we have the mind of Christ, and I myself, brethren, for my part, could not speak to you as spiritual men. And so uh, sometimes the chapter divisions fall in really unfortunate places, and this certainly is one because we have the mind of Christ goes right into uh, this, this strong contrast where Paul emphatically states, I for my part... Brethren, now I'm thankful for the fact that he calls them brethren, right? Um, Now normally what we do when we see the word brethren is we just jump to the conclusion that, okay, well, Paul assumes that they're all Christians. That may or may not be true. But what it does do is it tells us that he's addressing the whole church. That's what it does. Paul's not just addressing a few people here or there. Paul's not just addressing a few pockets of resistance or a few little groups, subgroups that are 
problematic. He is actually addressing the whole church. And that's not to say that everyone is necessarily guilty of the divisiveness and the contention and the pride, but it is most certainly to say that everybody in the Corinthian assembly has been affected by the divisiveness, the contention, and the pride. And so he's going to speak to them as as a whole church. And notice he says emphatically, as for my part, even though we have the mind of Christ, I was not able to speak to you as men of the Spirit. And again, I'm going to um, emphasize this, that when you see that word spiritual, don't read into it our contemporary idea of spiritual or spirituality. For Paul, spiritual, we should probably have the idea of of a capital S on the front because Paul is describing people who are people of the Spirit. That is, they are people who have been made new by the Spirit and are indwelt by the Spirit. That's what it is to be spiritual. It's important to understand this in Paul because, for instance, in Galatians 6.1, if you have the idea that spiritual is, is a, a higher caliber of Christian, then what you end up doing is you end up having some sort of, of spiritual hierarchy. And Paul says, um, uh, so, uh, brethren, if any one of you are overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one. And we go, oh, spiritual, that's like the super-Christian. And for Paul, that's not the super-Christian. For Paul, the spiritual is the man who has the spirit. And if you're a Christian, you have the spirit. And so Paul says, I, I really, I really wanted to talk to you. I wanted to preach to you, speak to you, teach you as those who have the Spirit, those who have been made new, those who have been brought from death into life, those who have been taken from this present age and transferred into the age to come. I wanted to talk to you as Jesus in time Spirit people, and yet, ah, uh, I couldn't. Now, Paul knows they have the Spirit. But they are acting in ways that are contrary to life in the Spirit. Is it possible for God's people to actually be born again and dwelt by the Spirit and yet live in ways that are contrary to what life in the Spirit is supposed to look like? Is that possible? Anybody want to testify that that was part of their experience today? <laughs> right? I mean, th- this is just true, right? It's just true. We are, we are walking internal conflicts, all right? We, uh, Galatians 5.16, the flesh wages war against the spirit, the spirit against the flesh, so you don't do the things that you please. So there's this, there's this battle that goes on inside of us. But let's face it, at times, there are certain areas we might... We might call them certain blind spots where it's as if the Spirit of God is completely void in those areas. And so here are these Corinthians, and Paul, Paul understands that their thinking and their conduct simply seems not to take the Holy Spirit into account. Now, I don't want to be really, really hard on the Corinthians, but have you ever sort of had a a moment where you were awakened to the reality that there there was an area of your life where you were living, you were thinking, you were doing, where you weren't taking the Holy Spirit into account at all? And this is the Corinthians. And Paul says, I wanted to speak to you as men of the Spirit, but I, uh, I couldn't. I had to speak to you as fleshly. Fleshly. Now, I'm, I'm going to hammer on this a, a lot, but Paul's not creating classes and categories of Christians. All right? Just be clear about that. He's focusing on their problem which is they are not thinking and living like those who have the Spirit in this area, 
And he says, I had to speak to you as, uh, notice this, fleshly. Now, there's, there's an interesting thing that goes on in this text. He uses the word sarkinos. Okay, the word sarks means flesh. He uses the word sarkinos here in verse 1, which means fleshly. That has the idea of that which is composed of the flesh. Okay? This word, sarkinos, is the idea of humanness, the, the physical aspect of existence. He's going to use a word that most of our translators translate exactly the same way, but it's a different word, and it is, he's going to use it twice in verses 3 and 4, and that is the word sarkikos. So you have sarkinos and sarkikos. Sarkikos is different, and it means that which is characterized by the flesh. So the first one, sarkinos, is that which is made up of flesh. And the second, sarkikos, is that which is characterized by the flesh. And Paul does this on purpose. All right. So he says... I had to speak to you as fleshly. Notice he doesn't say, I had to speak to you as psuchikos. Remember, psuchikos is natural. That's 2.14. The natural man, the psuchikos man, doesn't receive the things of the Spirit of God. He doesn't say that. And in fact, he can't say that because the Corinthians are not psuchikos. That is, they're not natural men anymore. They've come to faith in Christ. The Spirit of God actually does indwell them. And even though they aren't thinking like it and acting like it, they no longer are natural men. But boy, in the way that they're thinking and the way that they're acting, it is very fleshly. Now, you you have to appreciate this because there is a really uh, wonderful irony that's happening here. There would be a fairly large contingent in the Corinthian church that would have downplayed their physical existence. Okay? Um, In other words, they had a super spiritualized view of life. All right? They, they, they viewed themselves as so much a part of the age to come that their own fleshiness, fleshliness, was, uh, was, was, was just a non-issue anymore. And we actually see this most clearly in the 1 Corinthians 15 passage where they were deny, some were denying the bodily resurrection. What was it that did, what was it behind denying the bodily resurrection? Well, it was this is that human existence, physical bodily existence really is irrelevant. Now, that that would that manifests itself in two different ways in the Corinthian epistle. If you're going to argue that your physical Human existence is irrelevant. All that matters is your spirituality. That's going to look like one of two different things. It's either going to look like an asceticism where you are denying bodily desires, right? So sort of like monasticism or a, a, a licentiousness that is indulging bodily desires, okay? So both of those are, 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 in a sense, natural offshoots of the idea of believing that human physical existence is irrelevant. Okay? It just looks like two different things. And you could imagine some people that maybe are a little more self-righteous and a little more self-controlled are going to gravitate towards the asceticism side and those that have less control and maybe have lived a, a, a more carnal life are going to gravitate towards the licentious side. But all the while, both arguing that God's going to do away with the body. The body's irrelevant. And Paul actually says, now, when I wanted to talk to you, I wanted to talk to you as men of the spirit. But really, all I could talk to you as is people of pure human physical existence. Contrary to their own self-perception. And so, Paul then qualifies that. By 
this little phrase, as infants in Christ. Now notice, they still are in Christ, okay? Paul's not saying that they are not real Christians. What he's saying is that they are infants in Christ. Their, their fleshliness is actually just indicative of their own immaturity and infancy. And so here is, again, a, just a, a, a statement that is the exact opposite of being mature. Again, another irony uh, to a people who thought they were incredibly mature, a people who thought they had really arrived, Paul says, you're little babies. You're little babies. You're infants in Christ. And um, now you should be grown up. You have the mind of Christ. Chapter 2, verse 16. You have the spirit of God. You should be grown up. But you're not. You, you are thinking like babies. You're thinking like infants. You are thinking like immature, fleshly people. And note... His call to them is not for them just to get deeper into truth or doctrine, but for them to abandon their childishness. This This passage is not a call to the higher life. This passage is a call to abandon worldly thinking and childish behavior. That's what this passage is a call to. Because here are the Corinthians who should have been much farther along than they were, and yet here they were struggling with the very basics of the Christian life. And so, um, Gordon Fee Paul, of course, does not mean to say they do not have the Spirit. They do. And that's the problem. Because they're thinking and behaving otherwise. The argument has considerable bite. Therefore, because his ultimate point is this, stop it. This was before Bob Newhart, by the way. Stop it. People of the Spirit simply must stop behaving the way you are. And um, in a sense, um, Fee brings out something here, and that is the, the real point of frustration is not that the Corinthians didn't have the Spirit. It was that they did have the Spirit. That was the ultimate point of frustration. It's one thing to be sitting across from somebody and talking to them and start to draw the conclusion that maybe this person is a stranger to the grace of God and does not really know the Lord Jesus, even though they say they do. You can actually really work with a person who who may be self-deceived and think that they're that they are in Christ and and maybe they think they're in Christ because they were baptized or they think they're in Christ because they prayed a prayer, something like that. And you start to get the feel there's, you know, there's no fruit in their life. They don't really, they don't really know the Lord and you can work with that. But how frustrating is it to be talking to somebody who actually should know better? Somebody who actually does, you're convinced they have the Spirit of God. I believe they know the Lord, but they are locked into a thinking and a behavior, and they can't hear me. More importantly, they can't hear the Word. And so here's Paul, and he is, um, he's frustrated. You know pastors do get frustrated, Right? And our biggest frustration is always with ourselves first, isn't it? And then, once we get over that to a small degree, then we get frustrated with all the people that we're trying to help but never seem to be able to help. Okay, so here's, here's bad news for you. If you have a view of success in counseling that says success is people getting better, most of the time, counseling will be a dismal failure. 
I promise. Wouldn't you say that's true, Charlie? Most of the time, you labor, you sweat, you cry, you pray, you show them the Bible, you memorize Scripture with them, you all kinds, and and yet how few lay hold. Now, every once in a while, something happens that's amazing and miraculous, and you give thanks to God for it because you know that it wasn't you. Okay. I mean... You know, God used Balaam's donkey. And when there's any success, any progress, you realize that it's just been actually not because of you, but in spite of you. But here's Paul, and he's frustrated. These people ought to know better. They ought to know better precisely because they have the mind of Christ and precisely because they have the Holy Spirit. And he says, I wanted to talk to you, but you're like, you know, and you're drooling on yourself and you're pooping in your diaper and you, you want a pacifier and you think you're grown up. Remember years ago, the um, president of our seminary, Earl Rodmacher, who's with the Lord now, said, you know, nurseries are cute places. You go in and you see these little babies in their diapers and sucking on bottles. He says, but what would happen if you walked in and saw a 25-year-old man in a diaper on the floor drinking out of a bottle? He says, it would be disgusting, absolutely repulsive, he says, and yet that's what most churches are today, our nurseries with 25-year-olds in diapers. We'll get that imagery out of our head and move on. Now Paul's going to give uh, their, their present eating abilities, or should we say inabilities. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not yet able to receive it. Indeed, even now you're not able. And so again, what Paul's going to say is, uh, I had to give you milk. Why? Because that's what, that's what babies drink. I wanted to give you solid food. But you were unable, and oh my goodness, the way in which we twist this passage as if somehow what Paul is saying is, I had to give you these simple, basic, God loves you, has a wonderful plan for your life. I really wanted to get into the eternal decree. I really wanted to get into infralapsarianism and the hypostatic union with you, but instead I had to talk to you about the cross. That is not what Paul is saying, all right? That is not what Paul is saying. In fact, the idea is that um, the gospel itself is, is both milk and meat. Get that in your head. The gospel itself is both milk and meat. And Paul says, you weren't able to take the solid food uh, but neither are you now able. And again, you know, the, the, the spanking continues. And so the way I figure it is when I used to spank my boys, one of the first questions that they would ask me is, how many swats am I going to get, Daddy? And I would say, <clears throat> I will give you just enough to make you sweet. So you know what that means, right? You better sweeten up quick. Because I can do this for a while. Okay? And Paul has just, Paul has laid the whacker to the backside of the Corinthians. And he is about to lay it down again. Because here they are, they think, hey, you know, we are so sophisticated, we have, we are wise, we love wisdom, we love our wisdom teachers. In fact, Paul, I mean, he's kind of boring, but my goodness, we are, we are the elite, we are, we are the spiritual counterpart of the Green Berets. And Paul says, no, you're a bunch of drooling, babbling babies that needed milk. The most fundamental, basic, 
uh, teaching of the scripture. I love, I love this quote. What Paul is calling them to is not a change in diet per se, but a radical change in the way that they view God's truth. One writer put it like this, one commentator. She says, while, yet while he uses their language, the fundamental contrast in Paul's mind is not between two different diets which he has to offer, but between the true food of the gospel with which he has fed them, whether milk or meat, and the synthetic substitutes which the Corinthians have preferred. My understanding of milk and meat in in Paul is like this, and that is that milk is the basics of the gospel that gets you into the kingdom, and meat is the gospel as it relates to all of life and helps you grow in the kingdom. Okay, In other words, the gospel is still the central part. You never get away from the gospel. And so the uh, old Dutch writer Wilhelmus Abrockel in the Christian's reasonable service. He says, growth which does not center in Christ is not spiritual growth. He who is of the opinion that he only needed Christ at the outset of his spiritual life and that he is now beyond that and thus leaves Christ alone only focusing on holiness or if he solely makes use of Christ as an example of holiness has gone astray. What a Brockle is saying is, is the, the, the minute that you think that you outgrow the gospel or you outgrow uh, Christ and you get to move on to the higher things, you're go, you've gone astray. You have totally gone astray. And I will tell you that, that the Christian church is in a very, very, very sad place because there is so much teaching that, that, that pretends to get us beyond the gospel into the deep things of God. And all it does is it ends up leaving the gospel and leading people astray. And so Paul's frustrated because their perspective has, has, in a sense, has moved off of the center. Their perspective has, has deviated from the centrality of the cross. And Paul says, you're, you're actually, what, what you need is, you need me to reground you in, in the basics. Man, I would love to be talking to you about how, how the gospel shapes your marriages and how the gospel is worked out in the, in the different aspects of life, but, but you are actually failing at the starting line. Then he gives them, in verses 3 and 4, the diagnosis, and here's why. You're, you're still fleshly. And here's our word, sarkikos. You're still characterized by the flesh. You are, by the way, this, this is in Paul, this is a strong, strong, strong ethical word. And Paul says the, the, the very reason why you're not even able to receive it right now is because you are being characterized by this world, you're being characterized by that which is merely human, you're being characterized as that which is just this present age. And here's his proof. For since there's jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly? And are you not walking like mere men? And so for Paul, the idea, notice he says it twice. He says, you are fleshly. And then he says, are you not fleshly? Actually indicating that the answer is yes. And in a sense, what he's doing is he's rubbing it in. You're thinking and you're living and you're acting in a way that is just, literally the text just says, you're walking according to men. When Paul says that, New American Standard puts it like, like mere men, and we'll use that kind of language, mere men. But the idea is you're walking like men. That is, you're living just like people of this present age who don't have the Spirit. You're, you're living according to mere human standards. 
Your marriages are just according to mere human standards. The way that you use your money is just according to mere human standards. The way that you, that you fight with each other, this is just what ordinary this age people do. And you're living in a way that, that, that you are more like, like the people of this present age who are still in darkness. And Paul says, and, and, and so here's the proof. When, whenever someone pokes out their chest and says, I'm of Paul. And then someone else says, I'm of Apollos. He says, are you literally just, are you not men? Are you you not just acting like ordinary, fallen human beings who have been untransformed by the power of the gospel? It's how fallen people act. That's how fallen people think. Do, Do you understand how different we're supposed to be? I saw an article the other day, it was uh, on the, the Gospel Coalition, and uh, it, it, was, uh, it was a couple of years old, I think, but the article was on the acceptable sin of the millennials. What, what age group are the millennials? That's your 20s and 30s something, is that right? The whole article was on how acceptable sex outside of marriage is to millennials. And he wasn't talking about the millennials of this world. He's talking about the millennials of the church, the evangelical church. And and so what we do is, is we... We, we somehow justify living just like the world and yet wanting to retain our Christian identity and our Christian profession. And what Paul is saying is, listen, you have to understand, you are to be a people that you're, you don't live like ordinary people. The ordinary standards of this age are not your standards. Those standards may make you seem weird and out of touch with the culture and with your contemporaries, but the reality is, is that God calls you to be a transformed people, to be a different people. Our marriages should look different. Our sex lives should look different. The way that we use our money should look different. The way that we treat people should look different. The way that we the, the way that we defer, the way that we that we uh, uh, have preference of others above ourselves, the way that we that we actually have humility, we should be different. And Paul Paul saying, you know, when when you're doing that whole "I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos" thing, you're just acting like mere mortals. You're not acting like citizens of a heavenly kingdom. You're not acting like people who have the mind of Christ. You're not acting like people who are indwelt by God's Holy Spirit. Paul's going to have to remind these Corinthians. Do you not know? That your bodies are a temple of the Holy Spirit whom you have from God. You've been bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body. If you claim to be a child of God. You cannot embrace the standards of fallen humanity. This is where our standards come from. And this shows us how to live. And this shows us where the power is. 
And this shows us where the proper motivations are. This is our standard, not the world. So, I think it's pretty clear so far in this letter that what stunted the Corinthians' growth was their pride and their divisive and their contentious spirit. By the way, anytime you choose your personal preference over God's standard, that is pure, unadulterated, unmitigated pride. I know better than God. That's where the Corinthians were. So their growth was stunted because of this pride. They didn't have an accurate view of themselves. Mrs. Kennedy and I were joking a little bit before service about how when we were uh, young Christians, we, 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 you get to the place where you think, well, boy, did I, did I actually sin today? Huh. And, and, and we end up having such like this elevated view, right, of the, 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 the pride and arrogance of youth, right, and just having this lack of perspective on, on who I am and what I am. Paul actually says in Romans chapter 12 that we should not think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. We should think of ourselves with sober judgment. The Corinthians had no sense of sober judgment and self-assessment. How about you? What do you see? When you look at yourself, what do you see? They didn't have an accurate view of themselves, contrary to Paul's admonition. They didn't see the humility that the cross demanded. Do you understand? And and this is is part of the, the, the amazing contradictory perspective of the Corinthians. You understand that the minute that you embrace the cross of Jesus, what you're saying is, I am an unworthy, hell deserving sinner, and the cross is my only hope. And so it is absolutely 180 degrees opposite if we're going to embrace the cross. Jesus is my only hope. I am an unworthy sinner deserving death. And it is his atoning blood that alone can wash away my sins. And then turn around and say, now that I'm past that, now I can really move on to spiritual maturity, adulthood, and be a super Christian. The cross, if you keep the cross in perspective, you will realize there are no super Christians. There's only a super savior. They did not embrace the unity that the spirit brings. I mean, you have, you have to understand, there's this, there's this, there is this um, other aspect of of unbelievable contradiction, and that is we are people of the Spirit. I mean, we've got the Spirit in full measure. We speak with the tongues of, of, of angels. We're, I mean, we are so, we are so uh, much already in the heavenlies that our feet don't even touch the ground. And yet one of the most basic things that the Spirit does is preserves the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. The Holy Spirit is a peacemaking spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is peace. And so here they are. We got the Spirit, but I don't like you, and I don't like you, and I don't like you, and I'm better than you, and smarter than you, and more spiritual than all of you. Absolute contradiction. They attach themselves to human leaders to the denigration of other believers and other teachers, and the result was a church full of people who thought and acted like mere human beings, who acted according to mere human standards. And as a result, they lived a life that was characterized by the flesh and a life that was characterized by childishness. Paul was expecting more. You know, spiritual growth should be natural. 
You, you realize that, right? What's not natural is staying an infant. I love those twins. Those twins just absolutely thrill my heart. Ariel and I go over, I mean, they spit up. Every time they eat, they spit up. And they, um, and since they're still on milk, their, their, their diaper content is rough. I mean, it is gag material. And so Ariel graciously, you know, changes them when we're watching them. And I love this age, and there's a part of you that says, man, I wish they could be little forever, but you don't really mean it. You don't really mean it. Because if they were high school age and still like that, there'd be something seriously wrong. You expect babies to grow. If you plant a seed, you expect it to grow living things are supposed to grow. And so spiritual growth is supposed to be natural. We should should all be growing into mature believers who have the mind of Christ and, and who are grounded in the cross in a way that it shapes all of life, and, and we should be growing together, corporately connected together. And in fact, the Bible commands us that we should be growing it's not only something that's just natural, it's something that we're commanded to do. And so Paul says, like newborn babes, long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. In other words, Paul sets forth an analogy for us about how we should be longing for the word. Just like that baby gets hungry and, and wants his mother's milk and is relentless until he gets it, so we too should, should so long for the word that we are relentless until we get it. And it is that word that actually helps us to grow in respect to our salvation. The uh, apostle Peter also says in 2 Peter 3.18, but grow, these are the last words of that epistle, but grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. The writer to the Hebrews upbraids his readers because they should have been teachers by now, but instead they'd become dull of hearing. We're commanded to grow. And this demands that we honestly ask ourselves Am I growing? Am I growing in, in, in graces? Am I growing in the fruit of the Spirit? Am I growing in, in Christ-likeness? Am, am I growing in, in knowledge? And let me just say that, there's, that, that it's very possible to grow in knowledge and not grow in grace. Grace and knowledge were designed to go together. Grace and truth were designed to go together. But we're called to grow And one of the problems is that we can become complacent. We can become sluggish. We can become lazy. We can can make our peace treaties with our our little pet sins and just kind of settle in there and just kind of be okay in cruise control and and, and accept the status quo. And, And that is never good enough. And it's never honoring to the Lord just to stay where you are. That does not honor God. He has made you a living thing. He has made you alive in Christ and living things grow. Are we growing in the gospel? Are we, are we growing in the wisdom of the cross? Is, is the cross sanctifying more and more our perspectives, our words, our thoughts, our actions? Are we, are we growing in the spirit? Are we growing in putting on the mind of Christ. And the way to answer that is not necessarily that you can pass a theology exam, although that doesn't hurt. The way to answer the question, am I growing, is to step back and say, 
am I a proud, arrogant person? If I am, I am stunting spiritual growth. Am I a contentious person, a divisive person? As I look out at the landscape of my relationships, are they all broken? You say, well, I break them for the sake of truth. You probably break them because you're a jerk. We don't want to, we don't like coming to grips with these things. If, if we're always having trouble with people, we have to stop and ask, what is it in me? It's just the whole log and speck thing. And if I'm a person that's always divisive and I'm a person that's always contentious, then here's the reality. I'm not growing. Whatever I might think about myself is just simply not true. The reality is is that the broken stuff around me tells more than my own opinions. And so may, may these words never apply to us. May we be the kind of people that realize that growth includes certain pains, it includes pruning, it includes discipline, it includes trials, and it includes effort. You don't just grow automatically. Although it is natural, it just doesn't happen because you've squirted some miracle grow on your Bible. You have to be diligent. May God help us all to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's worthy of us putting on the mind of Christ and growing in Christ's likeness. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this painful text, and we ask that you would help us tonight to honestly assess ourselves. We pray, Father, that you would give us a a good honesty in our perspective. We pray, Father, that we would would, um, not try to dress up our sins but we would identify them for what they are. Those things that keep us back from growing, we pray that we would deal with them. And Father, we pray that we would, that we would grow into mature men and women in Christ. And we ask it for the glory of the one who's died for us. Amen. We hope you've enjoyed this message from Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. To receive a copy of this or other messages, call us at area code 775-782-6516 or visit our website, gracenevada.com.